Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. Howdy folks and welcome back to the podcast. Before I get into this episode, I just want to ask you a little favor. If you like the show and you like what I'm doing, how about hop over to iTunes and you can rate and review the show. And that'll help more people find the show. So if you could do that, I would certainly appreciate it. Of course, you can also share it with your friends on Facebook and Twitter and all those social media channels. Uh, And it would help spread what I'm doing to more people who might need it or like it. So that's it for a little plug for the show. Today, the topic I want to sort of ramble on about, it's about documenting your progress because as you're learning to play it's like watching grass grow if you look out in in the yard you don't see the grass actually growing you don't notice it but then a week later let's say you go on vacation for a week and you come home and you think the very first thing you think is man i have got to mow the yard because growth takes place very slowly so it's a good idea to document your progress along the way as you travel down the path towards becoming the world's greatest bluegrass musician. Go back and look at those snapshots of you at different points. And I've, I've touched on this idea in previous episodes, but today I just want to talk about it a little, flesh it out a little more fully. Right now, where you are today might not seem that different tomorrow you look you know if you're only looking back one day you say well i'm pretty much the same as i was yesterday it's it's like me when when you get my age and you look in the mirror i look in the mirror and i pretty much see the same guy i saw yesterday never seems to change but if i look at a picture of myself from 20 years ago or 40 years ago or 50 years ago wow i mean i have really i have changed But if you're just looking at it day to day, you won't notice the changes. So if you don't notice the changes, you may get the feeling that you're not making any progress. So it's important to document what you're doing so that later you can go back, listen to how you played, watch how you played, and analyze it, you know, and say, hey, I'm getting better. Because knowing that you're getting better will inspire you and keep you motivated. So let me tell you a little story. Way, way back in 1980. Well, I went to college in 1979. I've told you a little bit about that. And in 79, we formed a band, me and three other guys at ABAC. We formed a band called Pony Express. And just very quickly, I'll tell you where the name came from. We were searching for what should we call this? What should we call this? Or I should say, I was searching. I don't know if the other guys... You know, at that point, I don't even think they envisioned the band. To me, I envisioned a bluegrass band, and I needed a name. Well, I was sitting in Accounting 101, and I saw this guy had this belt buckle. And it was a belt buckle that said Pony Express on it. And it had a little little guy riding a horse, and it showed a map from St. Joe, Missouri to uh, San Francisco. Uh, wherever 
wherever the route of the Pony Express. Anyway, it was a little graphic of a Pony Express rider, and it said Pony Express. And I saw that belt buckle, and I said, that's it. That's the name for the band. I'm going to call this band Pony Express. And I traded this guy something. I don't remember what I had on me. Pocket knife or something. Hey, I really like that belt buckle. Will you swap me? And I got that belt buckle. I took it back to the dorm room, and I laid a piece of paper over it and made a pencil rubbing of that belt buckle. And my dad was a printer, so I carried that little pencil rubbing home. And I got in the dark room, and that rubbing became our logo. And we became Pony Express. And the logo, the original logo that we used, was a rubbing right off that kid's belt buckle. So that's where Pony Express came from. Pony Express, I was just learning. I'd kind of been forced by default into being a mandolin player. So I'm working towards learning to become a mandolin player. But I've got this vision. I've been, you know, watching, uh, not watching, but listening to records of Jim and Jesse, of the Stanley Brothers, of Newgrass Revival, uh, of Flatt and Scruggs, Bill Monroe. I've been listening to these records, and I'm thinking... I really, really, really want to do that. So I'm I'm a beginner on mandolin. Now, if you go to the show notes for this episode, grasstalkradio.com, click on this episode. In the show notes, there went some geese just flew over. You might have heard them. In the show notes, I'm going to put a tape recording that I made in 1979. I should say we made. The band Pony Express, 1979. And listen to me playing the mandolin. Now, I'd had a mandolin. I think I'd owned one since about 76. But I didn't really want to be a mandolin player too much. I was more interested in the banjo. But I became the mandolin player. And so I really diligently started practicing. This tape was probably made four or five months into maybe three months very early in the fall of 1979 we knew we needed a demo tape in order to get booked at festivals and so on so we got permission to use the upstairs room the band room at the college and i took my little tape deck up there and two microphones and we recorded a tape of the band that's what you'll hear. Go go listen to that. You can hear me playing at about the, I don't know, it's probably three to six month point. Okay, so we're, we're playing little gigs and getting festival things. And the summer of 1980 comes around, or we're getting near to summer. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, if we're going to be playing bluegrass at festivals and stuff, we need to mail a demo out and bluegrass unlimited back in those days. And in fact, they still do it would publish a festival directory, a listing of all the festivals that people sent in for the upcoming year. So it was a mailing list of the festival promoters. So one to send out this demo tape, a little brochure, you know, song list, a letter, that kind of stuff. We had our own pony express stationery. So I prepared these packages, but I decided we needed a better demo. So we went to a little recording studio up in Jasper, Georgia. Some guy that our guitar player knew, he was from Jasper. He, he'll record us, so I don't know what it costs, 50 bucks or something. 
And we went to this guy's house and he recorded a demo and we recorded three songs. I also have uh, an example from that little session on the show notes page. So you can compare me, what I sounded like in the fall of 79 with what I sounded like in the early spring of 1980. So just five, six months less has gone by. And you can compare me. Uh, I'm just going to put up you know, some mandolin playing of mine from those time periods. We mailed out the cassette tapes. I was duplicating them on my two cassette decks, and we sent them out. And we got booked at bluegrass festivals all over the southeast that summer in 1980. A lot of some of them were, you know, a contract, and we will pay you X amount to come to our festival. And some of them were what they called split the gate festivals, where they say, sure, you can play, and what you get paid is determined by how many people come to the festival and how many tickets. And the ticket money is all split up, you know, like half goes to the promoter and the other half is divided among all the bands and so on. So some of these were split the gate festivals and some of them were what I call contract festivals. So you can listen to a little cut from our demo. And I was real big on the idea at that time of trying to play original tunes, that we need to be writing songs if we're ever going to get noticed, we can't just keep playing Flat and Scruggs. We need new songs. So uh, I, I think, I'm not, right now as I'm recording this, I'm not sure which tunes I'm going to put up there. But before this show episode is published, I'll have some of those early tapes up there for you to listen to. And it might sound a little bit like you if you've only been playing a few months. You know, this is not the greatest mandolin playing you'll ever hear, but you can hear development from the first, you know, the fall of 1979 to the spring of 80. You can hear some changes. You can tell that I'm getting more chops, more versatile. You know, I'm growing as a mandolin player. Then I'm going to stick a little cut on there from after I got out of college. We continued with Pony Express for a couple of years, and then I got into a band called Cedar Hill. I'm not going to go into the whole Cedar Hill saga here because it would take 10 hours to tell you the whole thing. But I just will note, for the record, there are two Cedar Hills. The Cedar Hill that I played in was based in Atlanta, Georgia, and we played all around the southeast. That band started in 1976, and I joined as their mandolin player. In 1983, my first gig was July the 4th, 1983, playing with Cedar Hill. There is another Cedar Hill. It's the one you've heard maybe on XM radio or something. There was a band out in Missouri. If you go way on back, and I think they started in the, in the mid to late 60s, at that time their name was Cedar Hill Grass. And we used to see them in the Bluegrass Unlimited band directory. Because when that would come out, we would look to make sure our little listing was in there correctly. And you go down to C and Cedar Hill. There we are. Marietta, Georgia. Call Jim Duck Atkins. So we were in there. And the very next band listed was Cedar Hill Grass. Somewhere out in Missouri. Well, they had a different name. We never really worried about that. We didn't cross paths. But I, I'm not even going to tell this story right now. I've just look for this in a future episode. I'll talk more about the two Cedar Hills. But anyway, I joined Cedar Hill, and that fall, we started recording 
an actual album, not a demo tape, but we, we were cutting an album, a 33 and a third RPM vinyl record with Cedar Hill. And that process began in the fall of 1983 and it came out early spring 1984. I'm going to put a little of my playing from that record on the show notes page. So now you can look, you can listen to me in 1979, me in the spring of 80, and me in the fall of 1983. You just gauge my progress along the way. Now, obviously, I've continued playing and playing and playing all these years. And, uh, you know, you reach a point where you tend to start to plateau, you know. I may have actually peaked um, a while ago. But anyway, the point I'm trying to make here is that I can go back and listen to these things. And you need to do that for yourself, too. Document what you're doing. As horrible as it may be to listen to, put it on tape. Put it on video. Get your phone out. Tape yourself. Put these things in a folder and periodically go back and look at them and listen. And if you're seeing progress, that's going to make you feel a lot better about what you're up to. If you're not seeing progress, that should be a red flag jumping up saying, I'm not doing something right. I need to explore the possibilities to improve what I'm doing. So that's the basic concept, documenting yourself along the path. Now, to close this episode out, I'm going to tell you one more little story. And this was from 1980, the band Pony Express from Abraham Baldwin Agricultural College. We had our band Pony Express. And I have to say, we were starting to sound pretty good, especially in the singing department. Our singing was better than our playing. We had a long way to go, but I'm still very, very impressed by the trio harmonies that we were getting in those days. And we used to work on our singing in the stairwell. We lived in a three-story dormitory. And in the stairwells, you got this marvelous reverb and echo. And we would just go in there with just a, a mandolin and a, and a guitar and work on those trios in there. And it sounded just glorious. Anyway, I'll, I'll have something on the show notes page where you can hear, hear that trio singing. Anyway, so here we are, Pony Express, 1980. We were booked at a festival in Cullman, Alabama. I believe it was at Smith Lake Park. I probably still have the flyer from the festival somewhere. So we're down in Tifton. We got to drive to Coleman, Alabama. I believe it was a split the gate. I, it's been a long time. I'm sure we didn't make much of anything. Probably nothing or near nothing. But we were on the flyer. You know, there were six bands on there and some of the bands were people we'd heard of. So we thought, man, we are really making progress in this bluegrass scene. So we arrive at the festival. We don't have a record table because we don't have a record. So we don't have a little base of operations where we can set up our table and be selling our records and eight-track tapes back in those days. So we're just kind of hanging around watching the bands that are on the schedule before us and getting ready to go on and do our show. Well, I noticed that over to the right of the stage 
be the left if you're on stage. But from the audience's perspective, over on the right, there was a guy set up with a table and had a bunch of stuff over there. Like you see vendors at bluegrass festivals. He was very near the stage. And they had a tripod set up out in the audience with a with a camera, a video camera pointed at the stage. And in between bands, the MC would make a mention of this. And he'd say, oh, so-and-so over here is... Um, recording all the all the performances of the bands you're seeing today and if you would like to have a video cassette copy of your favorite band just go over and see so and so over here and he and his wife are doing a fine job and they're recording all the bands and you can get yourself a tape and take it home with you and i'm noticing this thing and i'm thinking wow that's that's pretty cool because when i was in high school when I graduated high school in 1977. When I was a senior, by some way, I volunteered to be the guy who would videotape the basketball team. So when they, whenever they had a home game, I only did it at home games, I was the guy who videotaped the game. I didn't care anything about basketball, but I was fascinated by the whole technology of video. And back in those days, this was before... Every Tom, Dick, and Harry owned a VCR or a camcorder. In 77, they were very new, and they were huge. I remember, in order to tape the basketball game, I had to go get this gigantic case, and it weighed about 80 or 90 pounds. And I would have to lift this thing and climb up the bleachers all the way to the very back highest row right dead center open up the case get this humongous machine out and set up a tripod set up the camera and the camera was monstrous all this stuff's gotten a lot smaller and a lot easier now but so you hook all this gear up and then they would start the game and i would put in a video cassette hit record and i would follow the action, you know, for the game. And I guess the coach would review these tapes with the players or something. I never actually watched anything that I ever shot. I, I don't know what I, you know, I don't know what was on that tape. Other than I was pointing the camera at the, these guys running around on a basketball, you know, thing. So anyway, I, that was the state of video equipment in 1977. And in 1980, it really wasn't much different. That guy had, you know, big old giant camera on a tripod and over at his little booth, his table, he had a couple of these video cassette recorder player machines so that when the set was over, when a band finished playing, he would take the cassette out of the camera, put it in his, in his machine over at his table, and he could make you a copy of it. He would press play on one and record on the other. And in real time, you know, your 45-minute set would take 45 minutes for him to duplicate a copy. And if you wanted one, people could come up out of the audience. I think it was 25 bucks for to purchase one of those. It might have been 20 but it, it was a lot of money to me at that time, considering we didn't have any money. And I'm sitting there thinking, wow, that would be so cool if I had a videotape of our band performing. You know, what, what could I do with that? It'd be 
great to watch and maybe we could use it to help get us gigs and but I didn't have the money. I went over to the guy's table and I'm I'm looking and I I said uh you know, we're we're going to go we're with Pony Express and we're going to be playing coming up here at three o'clock and uh um you know i i noticed you're recording the bands and selling the tapes to people um do you give the band a copy too i was trying to get one for free he said no well yeah you can get one you got you know 25 dollars or whatever i'm like oh man so he's selling a tape of us but we gotta buy it you know, and I understand he's got a lot of equipment and he's driven to Coleman, Alabama and he's set up all his gear and he's got to pay for the cassette tapes and all this and he's trying to make some money. But in my mind, I thought, don't you at least owe something to the people that are on your product? You know, I guess he didn't look at it that way. I looked at it that way. I, I thought a better way for him to do this would be he comes up to each band and he says, hey, I've got this videotape things set up. I'm going to tape your set. I sell them for $25 a copy. Um, may I have your permission to film you and sell that? And by the way, you know, to sweeten the pot a little bit, I'll give you a copy of the tape for free and I'll give you $5 from each one that we sell. Would you agree to that? And I would have said, yes, sir. Count me in. Let's do it. He didn't do that. He was just or maybe he did that with other people, but he didn't do it with us. It was just like, you want a copy of Pony Express? Get out your wallet. Now, he, I will say this. He was a nice guy. And I was just a young, you know, smart aleck kid. And, well, actually, I wasn't a smart aleck, but I was very timid. I, I didn't go toe-to-toe -to -toe with this guy. I mean, I thought, who am I, you know? Uh, Bill Monroe might have approached the situation differently. But, you know, we were, were just, you know, wet behind the ears, just a bunch of college kids. What do we know? So I didn't debate it with him. I just thought to myself, oh, what a drag. You know, this guy's going to have this tape. And we don't have the cash in our pocket to even buy one, a tape of our ourselves. But I wish I had one of those. And if by that one in a million chance that you're listening to this tape, to this podcast, and you were at that festival at Smith Lake Park in Coleman, Alabama in 1980. I think it was May the 14th. If that, if you were there, and, and when, by the way, when we finished our set, we got up there and we played our thing. We, we did our part of the show. And afterwards, I saw two or three people get up out of the audience and make a beeline to that guy's table. And the way it worked was if you wanted to tape, you would go over there fill out a little form and pay him the money and then go about your business and come back in a few hours and he would have it ready because it took some time to duplicate those tapes. But I remember watching a couple of people walk over there like, and it made me feel real good. I thought, wow, that person wants to buy a videotape of what we just did. That's pretty cool. But if you're by one, some one in a million chance, if you were there and you have that tape, I would sure, oh, I would love to see that and have a copy for myself just to see what we really looked like and how we behaved and what we did on that stage way back in 1980. Anyway, the point I have 
attempted to get across in this podcast episode is document yourself. It's like looking at pictures of your kids, you know. Every now and then you pull the album out and you go, oh, look at Junior back when he was three. Wasn't he cute? And then, oh, look at him when he's 15. Kind of gangly looking. Oh, there he is. There. When he got out of the boot camp in the Marines, you know. You need to document what you're up to. Even if you're 70 years old, you might live to be 100. And you might want to look back and hear how you played when you were 70. Anyway, document your progress. There's The tools are free and ever, ever present. Every computer's got a camera. Every phone's a camera. There's YouTube. There's plenty of ways to do this. And I'm not necessarily saying, you know, make tapes of yourself and put them on YouTube. That might, depending upon how you're playing, that might actually prevent you from getting a gig. But document what you're up to. Go back and periodically review it. So that's that's my point for this episode. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Come over and take a look at the show notes and you can hear me playing the mandolin at those various stages very early in my playing. You just go to grasstalkradio.com, move down to this episode and click that link and it'll be the show notes for this particular episode. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the show. Share it with your friends. Go over on iTunes and rate the show and write a review. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you in the next podcast.